This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Turning Point series, where we hear from folks about turning points in their lives, what it was, what life was like before it, after it, and where they are now. And today's story comes to us from Brave Magazine, where a gentleman named Ken McKay powerfully wrote about his personal journey, and he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. I was 10 years old when I took my first sip of beer. It was all very innocent. I was at a cookout, and in those days, guys would share a sip of beer with their son or, you know, with a nephew or something. By the time I was 12, though, I had my first drunk blackout experience, 12 years old. I didn't, you know, I didn't even really like the taste of beer, but as soon as I drank it, I knew why people drank it. Alcohol's effect on me was immediate. It made me feel comfortable, and it made me feel like I was exactly where I wanted to be. And it was downhill from there. In middle school and high school, I spent most of my time learning how to get drunk and get away with it. And I got really good at it. And as time went on, things got worse and worse. Over the years, I, I would surround myself with friends who liked drinking as much as I did. We had a lot of fun together. Uh, our behavior was often dangerous. I got into quite a bit of trouble. Drunkenly crashed cars and hanging out with dangerous people. Uh, waking up in strange places like some stranger's house or someone's yard or a park, even jail. No one was hurt, thank God. I mean, I was hurt. I got drunk and fell off a roof and broke my hip once, but no one else was physically hurt. I hurt a lot of people's feelings, and I lied to a lot of people. The only thing really consistent about me at that time was complete selfishness. Looking back drinking caused the lowest points of my life. And all of this trouble was no one else's fault. I only had myself to blame. It didn't come from some desire to get in trouble. It came from doubting myself. I convinced myself and everyone else that I wasn't very smart, that I was the dumb kid, Uh, That lowered other people's expectations of me, and then that would give me the excuse to be lazy and not challenge myself. It gave me the excuse to behave badly, and that behavior destroyed my self-confidence even further. And so at 17, I stopped believing I could finish high school, and I dropped out. We're listening to Ken McKay, and we're talking about turning points, and they can happen in our lives at any point. Older, younger, cancer, alcoholism, a car accident, who knows what. So, Ken, what did you do next? I had nowhere to go, so I went to a recruiting office and I joined the Army. I wanted to get out of town quickly, and so I joined the infantry because that was the quickest way to to get in. Ultimately, I was saved by two things. An old man and a beautiful woman. And I'll tell you more about the woman later, but the old man was Uncle Sam. 
we got to Fort Benning at night and me and the rest of these new soldiers, we signed paperwork and got examined and they gave us some uniforms and we signed some more papers and then they cut off our hair, they shaved our heads and we went to some barracks to get some sleep before we would start this sort of initiating process again. That first night at Fort Benning, I laid in the top bunk of a metal cot and I rubbed the back of my newly shaved head and I kept thinking it's like they say about shark skin, smooth one way and, and rough the other. And I said to myself over and over again, I won't quit. No matter what, I'm not going to quit. I laid there in the dark, rubbing my head, and I thought about my father. And I imagined where he was at that time, what he might be doing, what he might think about me. And I thought about the shame of quitting high school and really running away from troubles. And I knew right then, I had a moment where I knew that years of drinking had dragged me down. And you could sense Ken was turning things around right here. Let's continue with his story. After we were done processing and getting our equipment, we went out to our training battalions and the drill sergeants made us line up in rows and dump all of our belongings that we'd brought with us. And they said, we, you're, you, know, you can't have any contraband and this is an amnesty opportunity to take anything that you might have snuck in here and throw them in the trash and behind us was these steel trash cans. And I was petrified. I didn't know what contraband was. And I wasn't completely sure what they meant by amnesty either. I didn't know what that meant. So I grabbed everything that I had brought with me that the army didn't issue me when we were in processing. And I picked it up and I went and I threw it in one of the trash cans. And a drill sergeant grabbed me from behind and scared the hell out of me. And he yelled at me in my face, envelopes and stationery and stamps are not contraband. Get that stuff out of the trash and get back in line. And so I did so immediately. And that moment has stuck with me in my life because looking back, I see the irony. I was so afraid and so naive. But at the time, I thought I was the coolest guy on the planet. Literally too cool for school. I was afraid of crowds. I thought that everybody knew some secret that I didn't know. I was too insecure to finish high school. And it was a contradiction that I never saw. I was really at that moment the coolest failure going. Still, the Army gave me some confidence and I excelled in the field exam during basic training. I passed each task perfectly and there were around 50 or 60 tasks like setting up a radio, installing a landmine, treating a sucking chest wound and I did all of them perfectly, one after the other. And only a few of us of the 120 or 130 guys in that battalion uh, accomplished that. And for the first time, I was proud of myself. And I began to wonder if I'm actually stupid. And when we come back, more of Ken McKay's story, our Turning Point series. And again, it can happen to any of us. It has happened to any of us. And it will happen more than likely again. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Ken McKay's story, when we come back.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our Turning Point series. And Ken McKay sharing his story of starting drinking at 10 years of age, having his first blackout experience at the age of 12, dropping out of high school at 17, and the one place he could go that would become his turning point, the United States military, where it turns out he excelled, leading him to think, Maybe I'm not as stupid as I thought. Let's return to Ken McKay's story. I was deployed to Korea. I spent some time on the demilitarized zone there. And my first sergeant in my, in my battalion in Korea once said to me, you know, McKay, you're a field soldier. I never complained, which in the Army and elsewhere, I've come to learn is a hugely important trait. I would work all day and night. I would always do more than asked. We needed sandbags filled one day while we were up on the DMZ. I stayed when everyone else left to eat and filled bags alone at the bottom of this sandy hill. And one night we had to qualify everybody on a particular weapon and I stayed up all night. Nobody had to ask me. I used night vision to score everyone and coached those through with difficulties. My first sergeant was, you know, he was an experienced soldier, and he knew I'd misbehave if I had free time. That's what he meant by being a field soldier. He took my pass so I couldn't leave base. He, he, he protected me from myself. A Korean lady in the village near our base, it was Camp Hovi, Korea, and she loaned guys money for drinking when your pay was gone for a fee. I went to see her once, and she wouldn't loan me any money. She ignored me, and I wondered why. And sometime later, I found out that my first sergeant had gone to the village and told her to stay away from me and not loan me anything. Again, he was protecting me from myself, and he was one of the best men I ever knew. He knew me when I didn't know myself. He took no excuses. His name was Thomas J. Griffin III, if I could ever thank him, I would. Thomas J. Griffin III I think you just got your thanks. And by the way, he protected me from myself. He took my pass. And my goodness, you can hear the, the, the thankfulness. One of the best men I ever knew. Let's continue. The Army was, it was really great to me. But it didn't stop me from drinking. It didn't cure my, my, my problems or anything. It taught me an important lesson, though. That if I put to my mind to something, there was nothing I couldn't accomplish. When I got out of the Army, I was 20, after three years. I returned home and got a job at a furniture store, and the owner of the place told me I should go to college. I never thought about that. I had finished high school while I was in the Army, so I went to a library in my town, and I got a book on schools, and I applied to those I thought I could get into. I ended up at a small school in North Carolina where... I didn't even know if I could pass a class, but it seemed like the right thing to do. It seemed like the thing my peers were doing, and so I did it. I had no idea what my ability was. After all, I was a high school dropout. Like the Army, I threw myself at it, not knowing if I could succeed, but again, determined not to quit. It was about that time that I met a beautiful woman. Her name was Mary, and I fell in love with her, and I still thank God for her every day. And Ken continues 
with what this woman, this beautiful woman, Mary, did for him. She lived in my hometown in Rhode Island, and we were the same age, but she acted like an adult. And she didn't do the same kind of things that I did. I needed to grow up, and she provided a great example. The Army had laid some groundwork, but it was Mary who really helped me change. After college, I moved back to Rhode Island, where Mary and I were married shortly after. The economy was bad, but my self-doubt was receding, and with Mary's support, I applied to law school and was accepted. After my first year, I was on the Law Review. I graduated from law school, took the bar exam, and passed. My first job was at a small law firm in Rhode Island where I met a wonderful man who became a mentor to me. He had been in politics, and he introduced me to a guy who wanted to run for governor. So I met with Don Kachiri over a BLT at a local restaurant, and after a few minutes I thought, this is exactly the kind of person that should be governor. He was a long shot, and he didn't have a lot of help, and I knew I was going to put in a lot of hours as his campaign manager, but I agreed to do it, and we got started, and he won. It was historic. I became his chief of staff, and... I went on to run his successful re-election a few years later. From there, I went to a big law firm. That was people's expectation at the time. That's what you did. And I did it, but I only did it for the money. Remember this. When you do something solely for the money, it's rarely worth the money. So true. And he had escaped living for the alcohol. And that didn't end well. And he was learning that just doing something for dollars, well, that's never going to end well either. Thankfully, Ken escaped the trap of living for money. And here's the final portion of his remarkable turning point story. I went back to the thing that gave me the most satisfaction. I got back into politics. I helped win several governor's races across the country. I held senior roles in national political organizations. I managed budgets of hundreds of millions of dollars. I'd never imagined the possibility of any of these successes in my adolescence. I even managed a presidential campaign. Despite great opportunities and experiences, some successes and achievements in my life, I spent a lot of my life not believing in myself but I still found a life. I found a meaningful purpose. And I found the greatest thing I have, a beautiful wife and three kids. So after everything I've learned, I'm going to try to give you a couple of pieces of advice. First and foremost, at any point in your life, make good choices. I learned that lesson the hard way. If you're considering something and you have that twinge that it might be wrong, it's probably really wrong. And I would suggest you don't do it. Or at least really take a long pause and think through what might be the matter. Because making the wrong choices can haunt you. Wrong choices can cause regrets and sorrow. And trust me, those feelings are hard to shake. The right choices, on the other hand, will serve you well your whole life. Second, don't waste time worrying about what other people think. 
My self-doubt drove me to bad decisions when I was younger, followed by lifelong regrets. Be yourself. Other people will respect you for it. Third, be fearless. Believe in yourself, trust yourself, and make your own decisions. We are all stronger, smarter, and more capable than we think. Once you have that knowledge, it's powerful. Some of you are going to experience self-inflicted difficulties during your lives. Some of you are going to doubt yourselves. But you should know that if you decide to follow those pieces of advice, you can overcome anything to find happiness. And such good advice and hard-won wisdom from Ken McKay, who turned his life around thanks to a sergeant, a first sergeant, to a bride. And by the way, that guy at the furniture store who said, son, you need to be going to college. You know, all these things we can do for people, we don't even know it. But we can. The power of our words, the power of our example, the power of our leadership. And thank you for sharing that story with us, Ken. And if you have a turning point story, give us a call at 844-627-8255. Record your story there or leave us your information and we'll help you record it. Once again, that's 844-627-8255. And by the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Another one of our favorites was Bill Bachman's Turning Point story. He left a partnership in a law firm in Washington, D.C., and not just any law firm, Williams & Connolly, one of the great law firms in this country. And he did it all because something was missing in his life, and he decided to coach Division III sports at Catholic U University. And my goodness, at Catholic University, and what a difference in his life. This is Lee Habib, Turning Point, Ken McKay's story. Your stories here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best college in America and the best place in America to learn about the Constitution, our nation's history, the arts, great literature, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you through their hugely popular online courses at hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, a man who was born... Well, he was born on this day, and you know him, but then again, you don't. But you'd probably want to say thank you to him after this is all said and done. Chick-fil-A. I could eat there seven times a day. 
Where the people laugh and children play Oh, I'm in love with Chick-fil-A Suddenly I need waffle fries in front of me With some nuggets and a large sweet tea Oh, Chick-fil-A, you set me free Kids get in the van so we can go there today But their stores are closed Oh, I know, cause it's Sunday Chick-fil-A The home of the chicken sandwich place where it's their pleasure, where it's their mission to serve us. It all started with a humble boy born on March 14, 1921, in Eatonton, Georgia. In a humble country town about 80 miles southeast of Atlanta, known, interestingly enough, for its cows, as the dairy capital of Georgia. We may never know whether his birth among the cows inspired his later advertising, but it sure is memorable. I have no explanation for what's going on right now, but cows are parachuting onto the field. I'm not sure if this is some kind of a protest stunt or something. But the circumstances of his birth did inspire his story. His name, Samuel Truitt Cathy. Truett was born into deep poverty, made all the more acute by the Great Depression. When I was a kid, about the only thing I had to play with was a loose tooth. (laughs) And the loose tooth wasn't mine, it was my brother's. Though many lost all hope, others kept searching for opportunity, and the eight-year-old Truett was among them, dreaming up his very first business, selling Cokes in the family front yard. There was a neighbor right across the street. Traditionally, she would come out early morning with a Coke in her hand and sit in that rocking chair and rock for the morning. So she was my target market there to approach her by buying that Cokes from me. This wasn't just any Coke stand on any corner. The Cathy's had to make ends meet by running a boarding house, welcoming complete strangers into their home. And the front yard was prime real estate for thirsty boarders. My mom helped me build a little stand out there in the front yard. We was able to flag down the Coke truck and give you signs from the Coke company to put around on you. Uh, little homemade stand there. And we'd sell a whole case of Coca-Cola's, 24 Cokes. So when you sell 24 Cokes for five cents a piece, you paid 80 cents for them, you'd recognize a 40 cent profit. But the Cathy's entrepreneurial spirit wouldn't be enough. And in 1935, the family was forced to move to the nation's very first 
federally funded housing project. Atlanta's Techwood Homes. Truett, now 12 years old, and in new surroundings, again saw opportunity where others didn't. The high-density housing project needed news, and the Atlanta Journal needed to get to its customers. Truett thought he was just the man for the job, setting himself out to prove it to them, and he would with the newspaper later awarding him for signing up so many first-time customers. But he says he got an even greater reward, daily satisfaction. I think the day of satisfaction is the day that I worked the hardest, the day I got most accomplished. And I think most people that way, when they do something less than what they're capable of doing, it's work. But when they do outstanding job and performance, it's rewarding to them. As Kathy's business grew, so did his needs for being able to reach his new customers. And Kathy attributes this moment in life to the creation of his people-first, service-oriented philosophy. And that seven years was far more valuable to me than a degree from Harvard because I learned the importance of taking care of that customer. I was very anxious to take care of that customer. If they wanted the paper put behind the screen door, keep the dog from tearing it up, I'd do that. I'd put it up on the, uh, in a rocking chair if the people were old and couldn't bend over. Part of it was that he needed to get the news hot off the press to the customer while it was still warm. A lesson Kathy would no doubt find useful later in his life. But for now, Kathy's paper route job needed his most prized possession. And I realized then if I ever had anything I had to work for it. So the uh, first thing of any consequence that I bought was a bicycle that I paid $4 for. It didn't have any fenders on it, but it had round wheels and a good frame, and that was good enough for me. And I never bought anything in my life that I appreciated more in that bicycle because I had to earn the money for it. In 1946, less than a decade later, Truett set out on his next entrepreneurial challenge, a restaurant. And not just any old restaurant. He later called it the Dwarf House, of all things, named for its limited size. When they did start to work on the place, while well, Ben and Truett got out there and they dug the ditches for the plumbers and, and they did everything they could do to help them cut down on the expense. It could only hold ten stools and four tables. I was afraid the man was going bankrupt because people would come in that he knew and said, well, you know, it's on the house. Uh, glad to see you. It's just... Uh, he considered a customer as a friend always. One dwarf house soon became three, until a raging fire brought him down to two. Once again, Truett saw opportunity in the midst of crisis. And when you have little kids and your wife praying for you about you really realize you don't have any problem that you can't, don't have, that, that you can't handle. And that's part one of this two-part story on this day in history. Truett Cathy, the founder of Chick-fil-A, 
who to this day, though not with us, still teaches us about how to serve each other. Part two coming up after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We left off after part one of this remarkable story of Truett Cathy. He was born on this day in history, the founder of Chick-fil-A. And let's pick things up where we left off. As the smoke cleared, an idea in his head became clearer too. Go even dwarfier. Open a fast food restaurant in its place. He was one of the first in town, but his customers and neighbors were pretty reluctant customers when he reopened in 1961. But then again, they hadn't yet tried the new addition to Truett's menu, what he called a Chick-fil-A. Mother always um, would salt and pepper the chicken and put it in the refrigerator overnight. She never disturbed the chicken then. And so that got him onto the marinating sea. And over the next four years, he would perfect the recipe using the skills he learned in his family's boarding house. People tell me, Trud, it's nothing so great about taking the bone off the chicken breast and putting it in between two pieces of bread and serving it. And I said, I realized that a simple idea, and that's the reason I was able to do this, because it was so simple. Now, Truett, if you talk with him, has this uh, homespun folksiness about him. That may be uh, the only thing about Truett that people might misjudge. He is very bright. As a matter of fact, I think he's a genius. In 1967, the Chick-fil-A sandwich was expanded into a full line of food and so would where you could find it, becoming the very first fast food restaurant in America to be in a mall. I had a gift shop in Greenbrier Mall, the first enclosed mall in Atlanta, and so Truett's little brain had been running double time, and he came out and said, Glass, what do you think about putting a Chick-fil-A place out here? 384 square feet there at Greenbrier Mall, Literally a hole in the wall. Place took off with a bang. And so he was the beginning of food in the malls. Quite a breakthrough, especially for us shoppers. But not all the mall owners were as thrilled. Truett had always closed his restaurants on the Lord's Day. Sundays, 
my decision to close on Sandy came the first week it was in business. I was thoroughly exhausted, and uh, I had to make a decision. I needed that day. Uh, I want to preserve that day. Sunday is for the Lord's Day. Leading mall owners to ask how they could limit their customers' options on one of their biggest days of the week. And how could they possibly do as well financially when other restaurants would have a whole day advantage? They asked Truett to change his policy, but he refused. They did come to the conclusion that if people left their mall to go and eat, they'd likely not come back. Nothing would change his mind. And for some mall owners, his answer wouldn't change their mind either. It's been a, a, probably the best business decision I ever made uh, closing on Sunday. Didn't anticipate uh, it, it would be to my interest financially, but it has proven to my interest financially as well as convenience of permitting our people to have Sunday off where they can forget the business and other interests devoted to the family as well as to worship that they so choose. Truett didn't expect, but he came to realize that Chick-fil-A being closed on Sunday drove up anticipation for Monday. They would want it even more on Monday than they would have on Sunday. Six whole days at my favorite place. Yeah, I'm lovesick today. Three little syllables, Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, you feel so far away. Chick-fil-A, I'll see you on Monday. In 1986, after more than 20 years in operation, Chick-fil-A opened its first freestanding, full-service restaurant, what most fans find themselves flocking to today. And they now have more than 1,800 Chick-fil-A's across the country. When you walk into one of them, you know you'll always have a terrific chicken sandwich, and maybe even a delicious milkshake. But you know you're walking into something even more profound, a place of love. And so we put together a function here at the restaurant with all of his friends and decorated the restaurant just to welcome him home. When we pulled up, I saw the, the sign and it said, uh, I think it said, Welcome home, Bobby Dennis from Iraq. So I was kind of like, okay, that's cool. No matter who you are. I didn't have a ton of money, so I was using coupons. And I could tell by how many coupons that she had in her hand that there wasn't enough coupons for everyone in the family to be fed that day. And I decided that I was going to go over there and take all of her children, kids' meals. She treated us all to lunch. Truett once said, whether on the paper route or in my restaurants, I have found that the most effective way of promoting my business didn't cost me anything but a little kindness to my customers. I remember in the 70s, I asked him, I said, Truett, why do you keep doing this? You don't need the money. Why do you want to continue to grow? And he looked at me and smiled and said, the more I grow, the more people I get to meet and the more influence I can be. And that's when I realized the money's a byproduct of what he's doing with the company. Here's Deanne Turner, 
Chick-fil-A's Vice President of Corporate Talent and mentee of Truett Cathy, speaking with our own Lee Habib. He started out, he used to tell his franchisees there were three rules. Don't open on Sunday. Don't change the menu and put the money in the bank. <laughs> and uh, and he was and, and that's how the phrase "It's my pleasure" came about. It was one of Truett's few edicts, and uh, he actually made that an edict to the chain, asking um, our team members not only to to greet guests in that way when they said thank you to say "It's my pleasure," but also to fulfill it "It's my pleasure" kind of service. It all comes from Truett, but for Truett, it all comes from God. And for God, hoping, praying to goodness that I can have the same kind of influence on my children that Dad and Mother had on us, to carry on the message of uh, what a happy home is really all about, and trying to recreate that of love and respect uh, for each other, for each member of the family, uh, to carry on a message of, uh, of good business ethics and uh, how to operate a business on biblical principles. How to use that business as a platform to touch the lives of other people. Carrying a message of how to be a faithful steward of all that God's entrusted. Chick-fil-A's corporate purpose reads, To glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us. To have a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A. We honor God in our successes, not in our failures. I think he's designed all of us to be a winner because he gave us an insight to we all want to be somebody and achieve something noteworthy in our lifetime. So that's God's gift to us that he wants it and the only thing he requests to do is believe in Jesus Christ. True it can be. This day in history. If you line up all the restaurants <laughs> Where I've eaten all my life Give me five bucks and some napkins A plastic fork, a plastic knife Then you gave me the choice To pick where I'd eat today That's a real easy decision One that's not too tough to make (laughs) I would proudly go for some waffle fries and a jumbo sweet And Greg, great job on that. Just superb work. And the team here just always continues to surprise all of us. But in the end, we're doing what Truett asks all of us to do, and that's serve. And we here at American Stories, well, we try and serve the stories and serve you with a little bit of dose of good news every day in a day filled with bad news and cynicism. You'll get none of that here. And by the way, this is all brought to you by our great sponsors at Hillsdale College, where, by the way, one of our guests here, John, had pointed out, we've got to make sure that people know that when you go to hillsdale.edu and you sign up for the courses there, they're free. And they're not just free. They are some of the best professors in the world. Each year, I go to Hillsdale personally. I, I went to a great law school, the University of Virginia. And every time I go to Hillsdale... I learned something from the undergraduates, not just from the great professors, but from the undergraduates themselves, their dedication, their work ethos, and their talent and intelligence, and the way that staff and faculty, they don't drive their kids, they inspire their kids. And that is something we need more of in this life. 
inspiration. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And you can catch all of this on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment. As always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. They've got 17 terrific courses online for you and the family. And on this day in history, in 1879, Albert Einstein was born. This is a man whose name has become synonymous with the word genius. But who was he? How did his mind work? And perhaps most important, what can we all learn from him? Walter Isaacson was so intrigued by these questions that he spent over 700 pages trying to answer them in his definitive biography of Einstein. Prior to leading the Aspen Institute, Isaacson ran Time Magazine and CNN. Among his other books are biographies of Henry Kissinger, Benjamin Franklin, and Steve Jobs. As we've done with so many other great authors, Let's spend some time with Walter Isaacson on the life and the mind of Albert Einstein. So considering how we now use this word, Einstein, was the young Albert a brilliant and ideal student from day one? He was very slow in learning how to talk, so slow that uh, his parents consulted a doctor. And uh, the family maid, this is growing up in Germany, dubbed him Der Doperty, which means (laughs) the dopey one. (laughs) He was also uh, somewhat of a rebel. Uh, One of his headmasters actually kicked him out of school. Another amuses history by saying, this Einstein, he'll never amount to much. I do think that all of those qualities made Einstein the uh, patron saint of distracted school kids everywhere. Uh, You see his posters, of course, among every school kid who thinks of himself as a rebel, Uh, or slow in learning how to talk. But I also think that these qualities are among the qualities that help make Albert Einstein a genius. First of all, his slow verbal ability. He was slow in learning how to talk, so he thought in pictures. He used to do what he called thought experiments. It's what you and I call daydreaming uh, when we're not Einstein, but for him, it was called a thought experiment. And it made him imagine things, like what would it be like to ride alongside a light beam or to be in an elevator accelerating in space where there was no gravity or being in a train with lightning striking on both ends. And that's what he excelled in, thought pictures rather than complex mathematical formulas when he was a kid. Aside from being a bit of a rebellious student, young Einstein was also remarkable for how he marveled 
that what most everyone else took for granted. His father gave him a compass at age five when Einstein was sick in bed one day. And Einstein said his hands trembled as he just watched why the needle kept pointing north. There had to be some unseen thing in the universe making this happen. I mean, you and I probably remember getting a compass as a kid. But, you know, we didn't sit there and marvel at something that seemed relatively mundane. But he said he learned so slowly that even things like space and time and fields, electromagnetic fields, fascinated him. Perhaps it's this picture of young Einstein as a daydreamer, utterly enthralled by the universe around him, that led to the myth that he flunked math class. But did he? That would be great. It would be wonderful for the irony of history. But no, he was actually very good in math. Even as a kid, he was teaching himself algebra, coming up with his own Pythagorean proof of the Pythagorean theorem by picturing a triangle and picturing a larger triangle and realizing that Pythagoras had to be right. Every now and then, you know, my daughter Betsy, uh, she's, when she's 16, she was doing algebra. And she got one of the questions wrong on her homework and was trying to figure it out. And I said, well, just look at it. If the line is, you know, x plus 2y squared and you double it, it's got to slope upward. You don't have it right. It's got to slope upward. So what do you mean? I said, well, algebra, math is just sort of the brush strokes that the good Lord uses to paint the wonders of the universe. It actually refers to things in reality. And she said, oh, they don't teach us that. They don't teach us that math actually refers to a reality. And, uh, yeah, that's what equations are. And so with Einstein... He was a little bit smarter at age 16 than my daughter, even though I love my daughter. Uh, So he was puzzling over Maxwell's equations and what they represented. Maxwell's equations were these new equations that had come along at the end of the 19th century, Robert Clark Maxwell, to describe light waves, electromagnetic waves. And as a 16-year-old, he did one of his thought experiments. He looked at Maxwell's equations and said, What would happen if you caught up with a light beam? Would you ever catch up with the waves? Just like if you were going real fast in the ocean, you'd catch up with the waves, they'd be stationary next to you. Could that happen to a light beam? Could you ever catch up with the waves of the light beam? And for reasons I promise you I won't go into, Maxwell's equations don't allow for that. It says the speed of light is constant. And so he said this worried him at age 16. He got all anxiety. His hands started to sweat. I was thinking of all the things that were causing my hands to get sweaty at age 16. It was not Maxwell's equations. As you can tell, Einstein was in his own world as a kid. And he did what so many other brilliant adventurers have done before and since. He runs away as a teenager, drops out of high school, runs away from Germany because he's, he's resistant of all the Prussian militarists there and stuff, runs away to Switzerland, Italy and then Switzerland, where he applies to the Zurich Polytechnic, the second best college in Zurich at the time, and he flunks the entrance examination. (laughs) Not in math, I may say, or in physics, but he's not very good in languages. It takes him a year, and he finally gets into the Zurich Polytechnic. And there, being the rebel, being the nonconformist, being the one who defied authority, he's able to tick off all three of the major professors who teach him there. The great Heinrich Weber, the physics professor, doesn't teach Maxwell's equations. Einstein quits going to his lectures. And then doesn't call him Herr Professor, calls him Herr Weber, which is uh, considered degrading. And so Weber uh, 
it feels very alienated from him. Pernay, the lab instructor, the physics laboratory instructor. Einstein was never a great experimentalist. That's why he was a theorist. But he goes into the lab courses of Pernay, tears up the instructions one day, says he can do it better, and blows something up. So he had to get stitches in his hand. Pernay put him on probation uh, from the lab thing. And then Minkowski, the great math professor. Once again, we have a guy who gets to amuse history by saying and putting in writing that Albert Einstein is a lazy dog and uh, not a good mathematician. And when we come back, more with Walter Isaacson talking about Albert Einstein. Einstein born on this day in history in 1879. This is Our American Stories. Our American story celebrating the life of Albert Einstein, born on this day in history in 1879. No better person to celebrate it with than Walter Isaacson, who wrote the definitive biography of Albert Einstein. Walter, a terrific writer who also has written great biographies of Benjamin Franklin and Steve Jobs. We were just hearing about Einstein's adventures and misadventures in college. Sure, he managed to tick off all three major professors because he thought he knew better than them, but he did eventually get a degree. And so when he finally does graduate from the Zurich Polytech, he does all right, does pretty well in his grades, but he's the only graduate in his section of the Zurich Polytechnic who can't get a job. Can't get an assistant professorship, can't get a fellowship, can't get a teaching assistantship, can't even get a job teaching high school, which he tries to get. In fact, he floods Europe. Oh, yeah, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, with letters, job applications, finally buy some postcards. And the postcards are the ones with the little detachable thing for the return postcard so that people could at least give them an answer. And most of them don't even bother to reply. In fact, in one of them in Austin in Holland, it's now in the History of Science Museum, the postcard Einstein sent looking for a job. I think they'd be slightly embarrassed since they didn't even reply but he couldn't get a job. Finally, with the help of a friend, he gets a job as a third-class examiner in the patent office in Bern, Switzerland, working on a stool six days a week, examining patents. But lest we feel sorry for him, I actually think working in the patent office uh, was one of the reasons he was able to come up with some of his theories. Had he been an acolyte in the academy. Had he been a junior professor at a university, he would have to churn out safe papers and appeal to the professors there. Instead, he was looking at patent applications and once again, not daydreaming, thought experiments, he got to call them, doing thought experiments about what it was really like, some of these things that people were applying for patents for. How did they work? What was the physical reality underneath it? He was taught to be skeptical by his boss taught never to trust in any premise, always look at the underlying premises. And the types of devices he mainly looked at were devices that would synchronize clocks because Switzerland had gone into standard time zones. And the Swiss 
being Swiss, were very obsessive about all the clocks in Zurich and the ones in Bern have to, uh, you know, work together and be very good. So there he is trying to synchronize, uh, looking at these devices that synchronize clocks. And, of course, they do it through signals. You send a signal, a telegraph signal or a radio send signal or electrical signal. And these signals travel at the speed of light. So he's sort of trying to figure out how does that all work. And there, right outside of his patent office, he has a famous burn clock tower, 11th century clock tower, with the trains coming in and out of the station underneath the clock tower. And the trains in the station, the clocks are all synchronized with that big tower as the trains come in. And so he begins thinking about motion and time and the speed of light. And that experiment in his head he did as a 16-year-old about catching up with light beams. But now as an adult, Einstein wasn't merely performing thought experiments for his own entertainment. He was also writing papers and corresponding with other brilliant minds. He writes a letter to a friend. He has really close friends and stuff. And fortunately, one of them, Conrad Habicht, uh, is a very close friend of his, and they form the Olympia Academy, where they get uh, drunk or eat a lot together and talk philosophy. But Conrad moves away for a month, which is really good for the history of science, because Einstein gets to write him a letter. Typically of Einstein, it's an impertinent, impertinent letter. Calls him, you frozen whale, you smoked canned dried piece of soul. Why haven't you sent me your dissertation? He says, if you'll send me your dissertation, I promise you four papers in return. This is a guy six days a week working at the patent office on the stool. But when people aren't looking, on the side, in the evening, he's writing papers. Papers about physics. And it's only later in the letter that you realize, because he calls it inconsequential babble, the letter. He says, I apologize for writing inconsequential babble. But then he tells about the papers. He says, the first deals with radiation and is very revolutionary. And yes, that's the one that says, light is not only a wave, it's a particle, the foundation of the quantum theory. The second talks about the true size of atoms. This was uh, before both scientists were fully convinced that atoms existed. But this is the paper he decides to use as his third try to get a doctoral dissertation accepted because they keep rejecting his dissertations because it's the simplest and easiest to understand of his papers. So he submits it for the doctoral dissertation. Another one deals with Brownian motion, which is why particles in water seem to, or in liquid, sort of flicker around. And then he says the fourth is only a rough draft at this point, but it's an electrodynamics of moving bodies which modifies the theory of space and time. It's a lot more than inconsequential babble, that's for sure. What he did not tell his friend in the letter, because he hadn't yet thought of it, was right after he finishes that fourth paper, another thought occurs to him, right as he's uh, going on vacation. And that's, oh, if you modify space and time, then energy and mass are related. And he comes up with the equation, of course, the relation of energy and mass, E equals mc squared. And there it is, the most famous equation in all of physics. These articles are now known as the Annus Mirabilis papers from the Latin phrase, miraculous year. And it was miraculous indeed. These four papers, all published in 1905 when Einstein was a mere 26 years old, 
helped to establish modern physics by radically changing how we view space, time, mass, and energy. He throws away 300 years of conventional wisdom. Sir Isaac Newton saying that time is absolute and it tick-tocks along, it moves along irrespective of any observer. Einstein says, no, time is relative. The only thing constant is the speed of light. Now, in these wonderful 1905 papers, there was somebody helping him check the math. A very interesting woman named Maleva Maritz. She was the only woman student at the Zurich Polytech studying physics. A Serbian, a brooding Serbian. They fall madly in love. Einstein and Maleva marriage. Even though she's older, she has a limp, she's somewhat of a depressive, it's an immediate romance. They go off to Lake Como on a vacation right after they get to college and have an illegitimate daughter. Lost to history, put up for adoption probably in Serbia, probably died of scarlet fever. And then a few years later, finally, when he can get the job at the patent office, he's finally able to marry her. And uh, they have two children together. And she's putting up with him, putting up with uh, helping him check his math, helping with the papers. But eventually, they drift apart. It's a very human story of Einstein, very passionate man, not the cold and aloof professor you've been led to believe. So finally, he says to her, because he can't really afford a divorce, he says, one of these days, one of those papers will win the Nobel Prize. Now, nobody had hardly done much with the papers. It took him, he couldn't even get an academic job even after he published the papers for a few years. But he says, one of these days it'll win the Nobel Prize. If you give me a divorce, you will get the money. Now, that's a lot of money, the Nobel Prize. Nowadays, it's a, more than a million dollars. She's smart. She takes a week. She calculates the odds. She consults with a physicist and a lawyer and a chemist. <laughs> and she takes the deal. Now, it's not until 1922 that they announce that he's won the Nobel Prize, but Maleva Maritz gets the money and buys three apartment buildings in Zurich. In the meantime, Einstein has fallen in love with his first cousin. This is a great soap opera, this tale. He and, they have to, he and Maleva Maritz have two sons. The divorce is kind of messy because he hasn't won the Nobel Prize yet. Uh, he's alienated from his son's anguished letters that just have become released to his two sons, back and forth with his first wife, to his cousin, Elsa. All these letters about the anguish of the kids, eight years old, 11 years old, looking for their father. He's finally gotten a job in Berlin, but World War I has broken out. Maleva and the children have moved back to Switzerland. He can't cross the border that often. And even as he's having this anguished, personal time with his children, his first wife, uh, falling for his cousin, not quite married to her yet. He's trying to generalize his great theory of relativity. And never a dull moment with Einstein. More on his life with biographer Walter Isaacson when we come back. On this day in history, Albert Einstein was born in 1879. This is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, the life of Albert Einstein, born on this day in history in 1879. And we're listening to Walter Isaacson, who wrote the best biography on Einstein not too long ago. And what better thing to do than to bring it to life? We've been hearing about Einstein's four miraculous year papers published in 1905 that led to a complete reimagining of physics. But these were just theories. Einstein would have to wait until 1919 for experimental evidence that proved him right. Two years later, he was awarded a Nobel Prize and things were looking up for Einstein. But not all was well in Europe in the 1920s. As this anti-Semitism is arising, as I said, Einstein is not a conformist. Other people were trying to assimilate, trying to conform, that sort of thing. For Einstein, the rise of anti-Semitism made him identify more with his Jewish heritage. He hadn't been very, he believed in God, he believed in God's spirit in the universe, but he hadn't been very practicing in terms of his Judaism. But then in the 1920s, as anti-Semitism rises, he decides to align himself politically with the Zionist movement and Judaism simply because he doesn't like people being oppressed. He believes in free minds and free thoughts. In fact, he comes to um, America the first time, 1921, with Chaim Weitzman. They ask, uh, when they arrive, there's 10,000 people meeting him at the battery. And they ask Weitzman, you know, did he understand the theory of the relativity? And he says, on the way over, Professor Einstein explained to me many, many times that by the time we got here, I was convinced he understood it. <laughs> anyway, there are parades all over the place. This is a theoretical physicist, but they're parading him up from the battery. But he comes to Washington, and the Senate decides to debate whether or not relativity is right or not. Boyce Penrose of Missouri comes out against it. They put the theory in the congressional record, and then they bring him to the White House to meet Harding. And they ask President Harding, do you understand the theory of relativity? And Harding, being one of the um, last uh, honest politicians in this town, says no. (laughs) At which point Einstein admits he doesn't understand the theory of normalcy, which was Harding's political platform. Now firmly established as an intellectual giant who helped launch a new era of physics, Einstein found himself playing a different role than the young rebel. By 1925 or so, he's been contributing to quantum theory, but he gets more and more uncomfortable with it. Suddenly, he's the defender of the old order. He's defending classical physics. He's the one who doesn't believe in quantum mechanics and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and the notion of probabilities. He believes that there's certain laws and that God made certain laws that govern the universe, and all this talk of probabilities and uncertainties makes him uncomfortable. Famously, over and over again, he says, I cannot believe that God would play dice with the universe. Finally, Niels Bohr says to him, Einstein, quit telling God what to do. (laughs) Now, speaking of which, people sometimes ask, well, was God just a figure of speech for Einstein? And people assume, because he was a great scientist, perhaps, that maybe he didn't really believe in God. And he kept objecting. He kept saying, no. I believe that there's a spirit manifest in the laws of the universe, in the face of which we have to be humbled. And that, to me, is my sense of the creator and what we're trying to discover. Then he said, 
We're in the position of a little child entering a huge library. The child knows somebody must have written the books, doesn't know how, doesn't understand. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of the books. That, it seems to me, is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being towards God. So always he was a searcher for that spirit manifest in the laws of the universe. For somebody with such a big ego and such a big head, he could also have a real humility that came from that awe at looking at the universe. And what a visual of that library and that young boy looking at all the books and the order and nature of things. And so the next time you hear people say Einstein didn't believe in God or you can't believe in God and be a man of science, just quote Einstein and tell that person to shut up because it's just silly. It's silly. It's a fake war, actually. There's never been a war on science and religion. The two have cohabitated together beautifully for centuries. Up to this point in history, Einstein considered himself to be a pacifist. His humility, his humility allowed him to reevaluate that position. As a scientist, when new facts came along, he revised his theories. And so, when Hitler comes to power, he happens to be, Einstein is visiting America. Einstein, of course, never goes back to Germany. Finally settles in Princeton. And abandons his pacifism to join the fight against Hitler. And he gets visited by scientific friends, 1939. And they go over the possibility of a chain reaction. In other words, putting into effect E equals MC squared, turning a little bit of mass into a huge amount of energy. And so he writes a letter to Franklin Roosevelt, warning that a bomb could be built. And he says, the Germans may be doing this, and you ought to start a project to have a crash course to do the bomb. Somewhat oddly, because he had been a pacifist and involved with a lot of world federalist-type causes, J. Edgar Hoover, who even back then was the head of the FBI, has been compiling a dossier on Einstein as being disloyal. Thousands of pages now available from the Freedom of Information Act, and they decide that he's too much of a security risk to let him know about the atom bomb project, even though he wrote this letter telling Franklin Roosevelt to do it. Uh, so he doesn't work on the atom bomb project, but he does help support the war effort. When the bomb is built, he's pretty much associated in the public mind with it. When you see that mushroom cloud, we imagine the e equals MC squared next to it. Einstein stayed in the United States and spent the rest of his life engaged in everything from scholarship to civil rights advocacy to the appreciation of music. And he was even offered the mostly ceremonial presidency of Israel, but he wisely turned it down as he didn't exactly have the skill set to be a head of state. But he does, on his deathbed, agree to give a speech for Israeli Independence Day. He's told a billion people will listen. He tells Ben-Gurion, great, you'll finally make me famous. And so he writes that speech, and on his deathbed he's working on it, and he decides to make it a speech on behalf of world peace. He never gave the speech. His papers are there as he's sitting there in the Princeton Hospital, an aneurysm has burst, and he starts with the very first sentence. I speak to you today not as an American citizen and not as a Jew, but as a human being. And he has an outline for a speech calling for world peace. But then he puts it aside, and he pulls out his calculations again on the very last night. And 
On that day, he just keeps scribbling into the evening one last line of equations to try to get himself just a little step closer to the spirit manifest in the laws of the universe with the little cross-outs and the mathematical mistakes and finally trailing off in the end. Thus it was that a very impertinent, rebellious, but incredibly imaginative third-class patent clerk became the mind reader of the creator of the cosmos and the locksmith of the mysteries of the atom and the universe. Spectacular writing by Walter Isaacson, a remarkable life, Albert Einstein's, seeking refuge in the end in the United States, as so many Jews did. We, of course, covered Billy Wilder and his refuge that he sought here in this great country. This is Our American Stories. Born on this day in history in 1879, Albert Einstein, as always, are this days in history brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the finest place in America to study all of the good and decent things in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for any of their great courses, all 17 of them. Jeff Daniels in the infamous toilet scene from the 1994 movie Dumb and Dumber. This is our American Stories, and now we know you don't want to hear the most annoying sound in the world, so how about some behind-the-scenes stories about the comedy classic? Here's Greg Hengler with a story. Dumb and Dumber wasn't just a huge success, raking in almost a quarter billion dollars worldwide. It also marked the feature debut of writer-directors Peter and Bobby Farrelly, whose wildly funny There's Something About Mary even outgrossed Dumb and Dumber in 1998. But it all began with Harry and Lloyd. Here's Dumb and Dumber producer Charles Wessler. Uh, give or take 90, uh, 1990 or 91, uh... Bennett and Pete Fairley came into my office with holding a script in their hand called Dumb and Dumber. And they said, this is the funniest movie. We really love it. We really have a lot of confidence that it's going to be really great. And would you read it? And I took it home that night and I read it. And I remember I laughed out loud a lot. I like it a lot. Uh-oh. And of course, I called him up and said, look, I, I really, really would like to be involved in this. It's okay! as a producer, and they said, great, let's try to do that together, and that set our, our sort of new relationship. Well, and 
and um, it just got turned down and turned down and turned down by every studio and every executive. I didn't even see it come. And we didn't get like, no, you know, thank you very much for submitting your script. Uh, it was a very interesting screenplay. I get calls from executives saying, what a piece of crap. You are one pathetic loser. Why would you send me this? No offense. <laughs> no, none taken. It's funny, like two years go by and we're, 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 we're all broke. I'm gonna go to the store. Yeah. Okay, just get the bare essentials. This is the last of our dough. In the meantime, while we're failing miserably, I had breakfast with Brad Cravoy about a completely separate issue. And Brad, I asked him what he was doing. He's, he was financing low-budget movies. Here's producers Brad Cravoy and Steven Stabler. I'll never ever forget reading the screenplay because it was the very first time I read something that made me want to piss in my pants. I was laughing so hard. So Brad brought the script back to the office. We all kind of looked at it, and I remember to this day that it was the funniest script that I ever read and the script that I laughed the most out loud as I was reading. So that night, midnight, I called up Charlie. I said, we got to meet. First thing tomorrow morning, come in. We're doing this movie. Charlie came in, and that's when I met Peter and Bobby Fairley for the first time. <laughs> but during the meeting, Peter and Bobby Fairley started acting out the parts of Harry and Lloyd. And it was really funny. We guaranteed that we would make the movie for $2 million or less. And we started to cast the movie. We went to Steve Martin, he said no. We went to Martin Short, he said no. The film finally started to come together when we started to talk to New Line Cinema. How about a hug? And they, they had a really interesting attitude over there. Uh, Mike DeLuca kind of liked the script. Bob Shea did not like the script, but I guess they liked it enough that if they could get the right cast, they, they said they would make it. And we came up with a list of about 25 actors. And they said, if you can get two of these actors from this list of 25, we'll green light Dumb and Dumber. So you're telling me there's a chance. And uh, what we discovered was of the 25 odd actors on that list, not one said yes. New Line came back and said, look, we just finished shooting a movie called The Mask, and we love Jim Carrey. But Ace Ventura had not come out yet, so he was pretty much unknown at that point. But if you get Jim Carrey in this movie, we'll make it. We were told that we could close a deal with Jim Carrey for a million dollars any time up until the Friday that Ace Ventura opened. And in our brilliance, we didn't close that deal because he was only a TV star. Monday morning, we called up Jim Carrey's agent, and we said, okay, Let's get our contract on. Hold on, sugar. Daddy's got a sweet tooth tonight. And they said, well, we have a little, little problems on Friday. Now you have to ask yourself one question. I said, okay. Do I feel lucky? What's it going to take? Here's Wessler and Jeff Daniels. New Line, we said, finally, you know, get Jim Carrey. We got Jim Carrey. And then Pete said, Okay, I want Jeff Daniels for the other part. There was just something about it. I remember reading the script with this friend of mine, and I was going to go read for it. And uh, um, I said, is this, is this funny? And I told him about the tongue on the pole scene. Are you okay? Oh, yeah. I do this all the time. And he goes, yeah, that, that's, that's funny. Snowball in the head. He, he goes, yeah, that's, that's funny. Sitting on a toilet. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Hmm. And they said... No, Jeff Daniels isn't funny. I mean, he's a good actor, but he's not funny. Ah! I had three agents on the phone. Two out of three guys were going, this will ruin your career. This is the end of everything. We cannot recommend more strongly that you do not do 
this movie. And the guy in New York, Paul Martino, I've been with since for 27 years, and Paul was the only one who said, do the movie. It's funny. Shake it off, man. I'm going to go back. One of the things they said was that Jim is going to walk all over you. I'm going, okay, well, but what about the toilet scene? What about the tongue on the pole scene? What about the snowball in the head? He's not in those scenes. So even if he is that kind of guy, which I can react to, give me a little credit, um, there's the three scenes he's not even in. Put out the vibe. And then what Jim said was great. Jim said, this is a buddy-buddy movie, and I really want an actor across from me, somebody that I can react to and that will give and take. He really didn't want another comedian who would just wait for Jim to finish and then try to top him. And we were reading the, uh, the hot tub scene. My hair was long, so I just kind of did this with the hair and, you know, just kind of, you know, did that. And Jim got this smile on his face. This is the life. Pete and Bobby fairly said, we knew before you guys even said a word. You know, Jim and I worked a little bit together and, and I was, you know, I, I was having trouble getting a handle on it. How far have we gone? Jim kind of knew it and understood it. And According to this map, about an inch and a half. And how much farther we got to go? Eventually, I, I just, you know. Two feet. I just said, okay, what would it be like to have an IQ of nine? And we are going to need a smaller map, but we're never going to get there. And, you know, and so just to play the reality of that, which is all actor crap, but, you know, instead of trying to be dumb, why don't you just be that stupid? You know, so it just, I just. Literally, it was I would shake my head, you know, and, and like slosh my brain around before takes just to try to empty out any degree of intelligence that I may have had as a person. You don't comment on it. You aren't trying to be funny. You just are that stupid. Tic-tac, sir. Okay, it's a funny script, but then we're stuck with the Pete Fairley, Bob Fairley. Get the hell out of here. The idea was to just go ahead and shoot it. It's just they always, how far can we go? Where's the line? Let's cross it. The Farrelly brothers are like that. They're this constant kind of searching for what's, would it be funnier if we came in having a sword fight and then hat, boom, boom, pow, and all that stuff. It just kept adding and adding and adding. We try to shoot the first two takes of any given setup, script. And then we'll say, oh, guys, go crazy, do whatever you want. We got it, and we know we got it in the can. Why don't you guys go ahead and do whatever the hell you want? Yeah, Jim Carrey is such a talented comedian and understands humor so perfectly that he gave up the best part in the screenplay so that Jeff Daniels could play it. Cool. And that's the true spirit of a brilliant comedian. Whatever! All the stuff that Jeff does is really funny. In fact, if you look at the movie, the fact is, I think he gets half the laughs, and Jim gets half the laughs, but it comes from a different place. When they finally got on the set, it was sort of perfect because they got along great. Thank you, my good man. There was no competition for who was gonna be funnier or who was gonna be, uh, who was gonna get the, the, the goofy line. You know, when you're working with Jim, you've got so much to bounce off of and react to. and. He's such a gifted comedian. He's so smart. He's so precise. Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Somebody to react to that and bounce off of that. It was easy. I mean, he made it easy. 
It was all about whatever happens, keep going, because it could be great. Here's Stabler and actress Victoria Rowell. There's an old saying, a movie's never as good as its dailies or as bad as its first cut. But you get a feeling, and the feeling on the set as we were making Dumb and Dumber is that we were making something that was going to be really good and that we were going to be really proud of. Well, Dumb and Dumber is an anomaly. I mean, no one quite understands how such juvenile humor attracts the CEO of corporation. And they're not ashamed to tell you that they love Dumb and Dumber. Clint Eastwood came up to me and said that happened to him. That toilet scene, he was dating some girl, he really wanted to impress her, he'd eaten the wrong thing at lunch, he got to her house to pick her up for dinner or to go out or whatever, and he needed to find the bathroom now. And to have somebody like Clint, Clint Stature, tell you that story, and I guess it's nice to know that the movie connected with him as well. I knew we were on to something at least unique. I had no idea that it would be received and enjoyed by so many people so many years down the road. Um, and that's a great thing, you know. The last time I looked, the Greeks were holding up two masks. And comedy should be on an equal level with drama. It really should. And whether you're sitting on a toilet or, you know, doing Shakespeare, funny is funny. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. The making of Dumb and Dumber, here on Our American Stories. Here you go, way too fast.